Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. This is Struggle Care, and I'm your host, Casey Davis. And I want to welcome you to a special episode with Andrew Gleason from Dog Savvy Training. Andrew is my personal dog trainer that I train my dog with. And so, Andrew, thank you for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for the introduction. Of course. We're doing a week of dog talk kind of on the podcast this week. Okay. We've talked to a bunch of other trainers who have talked about things from the perspective of like, if you're somebody that struggles with mental health or disabilities, like what should you think about before you get a dog and how should you train a dog towards things that you might like strength and weaknesses. And so that's been really, those have been really fun conversations, but I really was excited to kind of talk to you. I'm going to ask you some of those same questions, but I also just love your whole approach to dog training and it's different than what I've seen before. So can you tell us first, like, what's a little bit of your background? Like, what has brought you to being the kind of trainer that you are? So, well, I'll do the Cliff's notes. I really got interested in relationships with dogs and dog trainers when I was very, very young. Loved my family's dogs and was just fascinated with relationship with them and the differences between humans and almost like had some really burning questions some things didn't make sense. Like, for example, I got bit in the face one time by a neighbor's dog. And coming home crying, bloody, my dad was like, oh, yeah, you probably shouldn't stick your face in a, a dog's you know, head that you don't know. And that right there like, was like, well, I don't understand why. Like, what difference does that make? You know, and that kind of sparked the next almost 30 years of just asking questions, you know, and I grew up in, I say kind of air quote, grew up in a very traditional style type of training. I learned from some amazing trainers that were service dog trainers and pet dog trainers and hunting dog trainers. And so I have a different kind of diverse background than a lot of different train, a lot of other trainers, but there always seemed to be to me some shortcomings that were just taken as this is the way we do things. And, you know, after almost 15 or 20 years, I just was kind of came to the end of myself. And I was like, I just don't think this is good enough. I think we could be doing better. I think we could be doing better. What were some of the things in particular that you felt like weren't quite connecting for you? For somebody that's listening, that's maybe like, I don't know anything about how they train dogs. (laughs) Well, you know, so I would separate it in, you know, the popular training which I often to refer to as like conventional or traditional training, but to somebody that doesn't know anything about training, that doesn't mean anything, right? So what I would say to to further describe that is command-based or obedience-based programs. So when anybody goes and looks at a dog trainer's website, you're going to see different services they offer. And those programs generally include some variation or list of commands that they teach, a set, a down, a weight, a place caught, a here, all these things. And so what happens is, simply put, the time it takes for somebody to acquire the skill level to produce those behaviors reliable enough to function with a meaningful impact in their everyday life is extremely difficult. And what I found, and I'm not the only one, so I'm not speaking just, I mean, certainly I'm speaking in my own experience, but this is not a unique experience in the dog training community. Again, tradition is very powerful. Oh, this is what we do. This is how we do things, right? We find that in a lot of different industries. It's hard to think outside of the box. But just to give you an example, you know, I 
have a very high skill level of dog training. I've been training for almost 30 years. I've competed in obedience. I've competed in performance canine sports for police dogs. I've been all over the country doing that and even internationally. Trainers at our level in those arenas frequently have dogs that fail. They're sit or they're down or they're obedience or whatever it is. And, and that's routine. So if somebody at my level of expertise and proficiency and skill of training those behaviors routinely have things fall apart under pressure, what is the likelihood that I'm going to be able to get you to that skill level that a sit or a down would actually counter some behavior that you're trying to work against? I love that you said under pressure, because I feel like when you think about teaching a dog to sit, and I, people are probably thinking, they're like, well, that's easy. I've taught my dog to sit. And it's like, well, yeah, like, I feel like when you talk about the conventional way, command-based, you're also talking about a conventional way of teaching commands of like, well, yeah, all you have to do is like reward them when they sit and maybe punish them when they don't, whatever, right? And like, yeah, everyone can teach their dog to sit, but sit, like, there's such a difference now that I have a dog, I'm realizing like, there's a difference between like parlor tricks and like functional commands in real life. Like it's nice and cute that I can make my dog sit, but if I can't make my dog sit when there's a cat running by or when, you know, my daughter falls and I don't want the dog to go jump on her, like then what's the point of putting in the work to have the dog sit? You might as well have them play dead. Like it's like, yeah, that's cute and that's funny, but like, is it giving me a dog that is better adapted at like being cohesive in my lifestyle and like knowing how to live with us. Well, I, I mean, I think that's a great point that you bring up. And, and that was one of the things that was stewing for so long for me that I wasn't able to articulate. Even if we could produce those sits and downs and weights and watch me's and place cot, which are like all the big five, right? The popular five. <laughs> and, you know, even if we could produce that, even if I could teach somebody to produce that level of skill in those behaviors, the question is, does it really even solve what we're trying to solve? You know, which is, you know, brings me to the point is, it's like training all of that control. And that's what I'll call it. Like in another word, control-based training. Generally, when we're thinking about obedience or when anybody is thinking about dog training, whether they know nothing is, is our culture is so ingrained in this is obedience. My dog won't listen. I need them to listen. They need to be more obedient. You don't have to know anything about dogs to think that way <laughs> about dog training, right? I mean, we're that way about everything, right? We're that way about children. We're that way about, I mean, it's compliance, 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 compliance. 100%. And what I just began to discover is, is that that's not actually what most of my clients want. That's not really what I want. I'm not saying that it, nobody wants that, that we shouldn't have some level of mutual respect and compliance in the relationship, but dogs don't struggle with conceptual understandings or mechanical understandings of performance behaviors. Let me break that down a little bit. Yes, please do. Teaching your dog to sit is very simple. The only time you have a problem getting your dog to comply with that is when they are having big feelings or an emotional internal struggle. It is not their conceptual understanding of what you're asking them to do. They know how to turn the key on the car. Okay, so if I teach my dog to sit by saying sit and then giving them a treat. And every time they do it, my dog understands what sit means. They understand the behavior that's expected by sit. And so if they're ever not sitting, 
The issue isn't they don't understand the sit. The issue is they don't want to sit. Exactly. They don't want to sit. They're stressed. They're overexcited. They're overstimulated. They could have a mix of those emotions going on at a high intensity level. Here's the crux, right? Here's the kicker. We only generally need that obedience. When they're in high stress. Yes. (laughs) And to look at obedience as a way to control for the misbehavior of the dog is just the wrong viewpoint. And so let me ask you this. I feel like the average person, when you talk about dog training conventionally, like the name that comes to mind for me is Caesar Milan. <laughs> like so many of us grew up watching the dog whisper her, whisper where this guy would come in and he'd say like, the reason your dog doesn't obey you is because he doesn't think you're the alpha dog. He doesn't think you're the leader. And you have to like put down the hammer and show him that you're the leader or whatever. And one of the things I want to get your like opinion on that. But one of the things that I've also observed, because I spend a lot of time on TikTok, obviously, and I follow a lot of dog trainers of all different kinds. And there's this really particular personality that seems to be attracted to that like compliance based it's always a dude. It's always a dude that has like a very, like, I don't know. It's very like, I'm so like, it's very like, watch this as I walk down the street and I go down and the dog gets down and doesn't move. And you're like, whoa. And I feel like that's also a big part of like a lay person's understanding of dog training. And so how much did Caesar Milan's thing color the dog world, or was he a reflection of the dog world at that time? That's a really great great question. Um, you know, so many trainers currently are, I have the fortunate luxury to be old <laughs> <laughs> and to have been in the industry for a very long time and seen a number of different pendulum swings. And that's what we tend to do, just human behavior, right? Oh, this isn't working. So let's go clear to the other side of the you know field. But so Caesar Milan, I think, well, first of all, let me say this amazing marketing team. (laughs) Like videography is magic. You can make anything look whatever you want. (laughs) And so kudos to Cesar Milan's charisma and his marketing team. As far as the information I think that was received in that really did influence, I would say, a large portion of professional trainers, but but more so the general public. And I think that um, I still encounter people with that mindset. And I don't judge anybody for how they, what they know and what they don't know. But I don't generally have any pushback trying to help them to a more healthy, more harmonious kind of approach and mindset towards relationship with another animal. You know, it certainly affected things. And I would say from a dog standpoint, let's just talk about animals. I don't know any animal that thrives under that type of dominance and control and perceived threat. Not to mention the whole like alpha dog theory has been completely debunked in case people don't know that. It was originally this study that a man did on wolves where he was like, oh, there's one alpha wolf that kind of is the leader and everyone has to listen to him and he makes challenges. And then like the actual like person that wrote the study came back later and was like, oh, never mind. Like actually that's only in like captive wolves that are in like this weird place. And it's not, that doesn't happen in nature. Like they're much more uh, community based in their packs. And even so like domestic 
domestic dogs are not wolves and like it wouldn't apply even if it was. But like we no longer think the alpha theory is a thing. And you're right. Like we're at an age where we remember Caesar Milan and also at an age where like when I was growing up, the trainers that came in, I mean, my husband and I have talked about this, like that was the era of, well, if your dog goes to the bathroom in the house, rub their face, like stick their face in it and scream no at them. Right. Or like put them on their back. So, you know, who's whatever. And Casey, that was like common knowledge. I mean, you know, when I I first started professionally training in 1996, I was 16 years old. That's a long time ago. And training has progressed exponentially since then. Our understanding of what can actually be accomplished, the complexities of learning in the animal is far more deep than we originally knew. And our culture has shifted, right? And so taking a newspaper to their nose, you know, and swatting them on their nose was absolutely common knowledge and not really thought of as like unusual or bizarre, or, <laughs> you know. But our, our dogs have become so much more part of our lives and we form deeper and stronger connections and have a desire to do that with our dogs. At the same time that that's occurring, our lifestyles and work life home, I hate that word balance, but is also changing at a rapid pace. It is faster paced. It is more stressful. It has different components in it than it ever has before. We are more distracted than we have been before. And when you put those two things together with a very sentient, complex social animal with more expectations, you know, this idea that we're just going to dominate and control them is a little bit short-sighted. What are some of the negatives or some of the fallout that you have seen as a trainer from that style of, well, let's just go really heavy on commands. Let's go really heavy on... And here's the thing that's really interesting about this is that I talk about human psychology, right? And you're kind of like the dog psychology world. And in particular, when you think about human psychology in our education system... It's very operant learning for a lot of parts, and especially as you get into special education, right? Which is, oh, well, here you have this child that's autistic and they don't know their numbers. We'll just sit them down at, a, at you know, for a few hours at a table. And when they point to the right letter, you reward them, right? Whether it's with a Cheerio or praise or iPad time. And if they don't, we put in either some negative reinforcement or some positive punishment, whatever, like, okay, you can't have this until you do X. And what they found was like, it works, you can absolutely condition a behavior from a child, but there was negative fallout from that, right? We would get kids 10, 20 years later who had gone through some of these therapies going, this was traumatizing, going, hey, I, yeah, yeah, I learned to make eye contact, but what I really learned was to suppress how painful eye contact was for me to please you. And what I find so interesting is that when you started talking about the fallout of that conventional dog training, it sounded a lot like the fallout from sort of that conventional education response, which is, yeah, dogs were learning, but what were they learning and what was happening to their emotional well-being? And then what was that dysregulation of the emotional well-being kind of causing that was not great? So I would say... There are two general responses that we'll find in a dog who is undergoing that type of training. And listen, there's a spectrum of what 
just call air quote that type of training, right? And so we'll just reference Caesar, kind of the alpha, more dominant approach, control based. That can happen in varying intensities. You could be extremely dominant, right? Or extremely alpha with your dog, or you could just generally subscribe that you need to be in control of things, right? And that would be a little bit of a spectrum. So let's just talk about the two largest responses that dogs would give you in those scenarios, under those circumstances. One is the dog's individual makeup and personality is going to either tend to suppression or reaction. And because it's hostile on the emotional system. And so I'm not saying somebody is hostile towards their dog. I'm saying that approach and the techniques generally applied, whether it's a Caesar approach or whether it's a very heavy handed kind of punishment approach with less Caesarish dog, dog trainers and more science-based dog trainers with punishment, the dogs will either tend to suppress behavior or they will tend to what we would call like go into a defense drive. And that defense drive would manifest itself as maybe barking back or, you know, fighting that. And if we think about humans, this is like, that's going to be our general responses in humans too. I'm either going to like verbally disagree with this, get on it real quick, or we're going to be the type of person who just kind of gets quiet and like starts to just like know their place, you know, like, whoop, but I'm not going to step out like that again. But we didn't change behavior in a very healthy way for the dog. And here's the seductive part of it. The seductive part of it, if you have, let's call dog A response is the suppression. The seductive part of that for the human is that the behavior that they were trying to address stopped. Therefore, it's highly reinforcing to the human because their frustration or embarrassment or anger over that particular behavior is now gone. That's when I hear, you know, things like, it was great training. Training was awesome. That's speaking from the emotional human side of the problem, meaning I don't have any more problems with my dog. Except we have a dog over here that's like, it came at the cost. still has problems. Yeah, exactly. And, And that's why I always separate like, you know, any new client that I have, I really want them to, and help them understand that there are two distinct sets of problems. <laughs> there are the problems that your dog is struggling with, and almost invariably, they're all some type of emotional conflict that the dog isn't able to resolve themselves well. Okay. That's what produces the frustrating behavior, the not being able to listen, the chasing the squirrel and all of these different things, right? So that's the problem the dog is having. Well, that creates our human problem, whether it's embarrassment or frustration, or I just don't feel like I'm connecting with my dog and they're not listening. And so when I get hired, it's really to solve the human problem. (laughs) Like I don't want to be frustrated anymore, right? (laughs) I'm someone who happens to believe that the chore of feeding myself is one of the most annoying care tasks. And that's why I really like Factor. And when I say I really like Factor, I mean, they shipped me some food and told me to eat it and make an ad. And I not only did that, but then I went back and spent my own money and bought more of them. And I can't wait till the box gets here. That's because Factor really does make eating easier. And this was on the heels of a doctor's appointment where I got very strict instructions to give my body better nutrients. So wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with pre-prepared, chef-crafted and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. And they actually do taste good. You'll get over 35 different options a week to choose from. And even I, a very picky eater, always can find something that I like. I love that they are two-minute meals. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. They all take two minutes in the microwave. Snacks, smoothies, breakfast, dinner. You can discover a wide variety of easy options. 
Sign up and save now. We've done the math. Factor is actually less expensive than takeout, and every meal is a dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. My own dietitian was stoked when I told her that I had made this decision. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. So head over to factormeals.com slash struggle50 and use code struggle50 to get 50% off your first box and two free wellness shots per box while the subscription is active. That's code struggle50 at factormeals.com slash struggle50 to get 50% off your first box and two free wellness shots per box while the subscription is active. Even my husband says this is the best he's ever tried. And we've tried a lot of these. Is 2024 bringing exciting or unexpected changes to your life? Here's a secret weapon to help you face those challenges with more confidence. A great term life insurance policy. I can't believe that I am 37 years old and I am excited about life insurance, but life comes at you fast. I feel like yesterday I was 25 and I wasn't thinking about stuff like this. But when my husband and I got married and we started having kids, it was one of the first conversations that he brought up. Really, Fabric by Gerber Life makes it simple to protect your family's financial future so you can focus on what's ahead, knowing your family is protected if something else unexpected happens. And I feel like I sleep better at night knowing that if something were to happen to he or I, that the other one could take care of our family. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get high quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. It's all online and on your schedule. No appointments, scheduling, or piles of paperwork. Just apply when it's convenient for you. You could go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. So don't be somebody who finds when tragedy strikes, you're wishing that you would have made this choice. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at Meet fabric.com slash struggle. That's meatfabric.com slash struggle. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash struggle. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Insurance Company. Not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. So can we use this example that I think will be helpful for the audience? Let's take something like leash walking. Okay. Okay. So let's say that, you know, a person would say like, my dog won't walk on a leash. They're pulling, they're not staying neck, they won't stay in a heel, they're barking at people. How would you give us a little like autopsy of in that snapshot, what are the humans problems? And what would you say the dog's problems? Yeah. So I mean, the dog could be having a number of problems, but let me just create the scenario here. More often than not, the dog is in an emotionally excited state, 
So we got a lot of adrenaline and dopamine and serotonin rolling. There are lots of stimulations around, which is very distracting, you know, just behaviorally and to the dog. There could be some stress elements because it wasn't really exposed properly in the process of socialization. So some of those things could be a little bit overwhelming. And so we have generally what we have is this very big mix of big feelings. And then the human is layering some type of control mechanisms over the dog to get it to do something else. And so we have this back and forth with a dog who, and I'm just going to use the term stressed, not necessarily as negative, but just the impact of what's going on in the nervous system is it's stressed, it's overworking. And then in that exact moment where the dog is in the most conflict it could be in internally, I'm also, or the owner is also struggling with that behavior, trying to control it. So we have a lot of conflict there, both for the dog and the human. And it ends up being very frustrating and not enjoyable for both. But they're two specific problems. So the dog's problem is fear, stress, overwhelm, overstimulation. And then like, as the owner, my problem is the dog's (laughs) pulling, right? The dog's pulling, the dog won't walk, the dog is lunging. So that would be my problem. That's the dog's problem. Okay. And it's not enjoyable for you. And I get a call. I can't walk my dog. It's miserable, (laughs) which is so common, right? I mean, no judgment. It is. And so I saw this TikTok video the other day of somebody who was saying like, okay, here's me teaching a dog how to walk on leash. And it was interesting because he was sort of like an old school trainer. And then there was a newer trainer that duetted it where you could see the video side by side. And she said, watch how I'm going to do this in a different way. And it was really interesting to watch these two diverging ways. So the first guy, what he does, and he doesn't tell us if there's any pre-work to this. So we have to assume there is no pre-work. We haven't put any pre-skills to this dog, just fresh dog, right? So he puts the leash on it and he starts to walk and he's got a real tight leash on the dog. And he's basically like walking a few feet and turning really quickly. And as he turns, he yanks on the leash that the dog like like kind of has to go with him. And he just does that over and over and over. So I'm doing tight turns so that basically he does it so long and and then combines with that uh, pop that the dog kind of goes, I have to be paying attention to you 100% of the time because I don't know where you're going to go next. And if I don't pay attention, there's this discomfort on my neck. And so, you know, obviously you watch that and eventually the dog kind of starts to walk on the leash or whatever. And it was interesting because to me, that was kind of like that old school, here's my heavy hand in control, mostly that, I don't know the that I get the scientific words, right? Whether it's punishment or negative reinforcement or whatever. But then the other person said, let me show you how I do this because the way you're doing it is confusing to your dog. There's no pre-skills here. There's no whatever. And so she took her dog and she had like a handful of treats and she just started walking with her dog as the dog like walked with the treats or whatever. And so I was like, oh, that's interesting. It's almost like the two kind of like polar opposite approaches. Very different, right? And what I think is interesting, and I want to hear your thoughts on that, but then I also want to talk about what you mentioned, the pendulum swing. So thoughts on that, like, oh, yeah, we leash the dog up and we just walk and we pop him when he doesn't do it and we, you know, whatever. Okay, so let me back up to our previous conversation and mention something that's relevant to this. When we're talking about any type of learning, whether it's human or, I mean, we're animals, too, right? We're mammals. So we need to separate that into two different categories, one of which, and gen- like in talking to you, I'll use a little bit of lingo, but when I'm working with my clients, I don't use any trainer complicated jargon <laughs> lingo, but this is relevant because it'll make a distinction. We have what's called constructional model learning 
And then we also have what's called emotional model learning. Constructual was what I was referencing earlier when I said like understanding the conceptual like tasks of a set or a down, you know, and the biggest human, the easiest human example that I use often is understanding how we learned how to drive a car. Like I knew where the gas and brake pedal and how to turn the key and the wheel and the blinkers and all of those things. I knew exactly how that worked well before I knew how to drive. But as soon as you get in the car and it's moving and you're behind the driver's wheel, that conceptual like understanding of the mechanics begins to be tested under emotional pressure. So going back to the walking is that generally the dog can grasp the, the concept of it, but is having problems with the emotional model learning to be driving in five o'clock downtown Austin traffic, right? And that's where we tend to jump to with the dog because that's where our problems are. So we jump to the pro- where the dog is having the largest problem because that's really only where my problem is. And in both scenarios, that's where the training was happening, where the dog is having the most problems, because that's generally, again, where the human problem starts. So we tend to try to solve our problems, and but our problems only really occur when the dog is in the most conflict. So we need to back up and, like you said, pre-skills. And so, you know, whether it's using food to teach a walk or using what we call social pressure, which is all the turns and stuff, both of those are going to have fundamental flaws in them. And I think lots of methods would have some weaknesses. Some have strengths and some have weaknesses. Let's talk about the one that's turning because that's extremely popular. You're going to see that all over online. That's one in particular that requires a pretty high skill level of timing and execution and understanding what the dog's responses are to each one that most trainers just are, it's outside of their awareness how much skill and timing that that requires. The other thing is, is like, well, what is the animal learning in that, right? Well, great. I got my dog to finally walk next to me. Well, it's really concerned that something is going to change and get uncomfortable real fast. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Almost like teaching hypervigilance. Yes, exactly. But here again, that's a, a really great illustration of that. If the dog is no longer doing the things that they were frustrated about, our tendency is to say, oh man, I feel so much better. My dog is, you know, listening, right? And so, but on the other hand, like using food to teach a walk, you could get, and this is my experience, my approach, where I feel like that's a better approach, but still has a really critical component that's difficult to deal with, is that If you use food to produce a well-behaved walk, you now have to fade that food out of the picture and still maintain the performance that you got with the food. Yeah, not to mention the fact that like with my dog, at least, she won't take food at a certain stress level. So like I could do that in my living room all day long. And then like the first time I took her into the front yard, she wouldn't take food. Yep. So it's like, well, what do I do now? Yep. Now you've lost your biggest leverage in learning and supporting learning and helping them learn. And that's also really common. And just to, you know, for everybody listening to give you some idea of what's happening when you see that occur is that internally, 
the dog has, and I forget what you call it, window of tolerance. You call it a window of tolerance. Yeah, has exited their window of tolerance and is stressed. Again, I use stress generally, right? That could be excitement or that could be distress or it could be both. Has left their window of tolerance to the point where they are refusing food. That can occur with us too. If we are under enough pressure, enough excitement, enough distress, somebody just died or whatever, there are points in our day and in our lives where we would refuse food. And so to just give you some kind of idea to place yourself in your dogs, it doesn't matter if the dog's not like being aggressive. It means that something internally is going on to where they can't manage that and they are now food inhibited. And we want to work on that. Yeah. It was so eye-opening to me when I, like the first time I took my dog on a walk and she was in my eyes, fine for several blocks. And then all of a sudden she saw something, she spooked, she turned, she tucked tail, she ran home pulling all the way. And I happened to have videoed it and showed it to you. And it was really eye-opening for you to say like, okay, so for you, when you describe it was, I didn't have a problem. And then I had a problem because she was pulling home, even though I was thinking it was her, oh, she had a problem. And you're like, her problem started blocks ago. Her problem started literally when you took her out the front door and she became overwhelmed and she wouldn't take food from me, but she wasn't giving me any behaviors that were problematic to me or that even read to me. Like if she had been like cowering and shaking, I would have been like, oh, no, let's go inside. But I didn't see those. And so like some of that is just like um, being able to understand like reading a dog's signs, right? But that was eye-opening when you were like, you know, we can't just focus on solving your problem. We have to tend to what her problems are first. Absolutely. And that's when we started talking pre-skills. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, what I have found is the fastest, best way to solve the human end of the of the relationship problems is to target and zero techniques and methodologies that support the dog's learning and resolving their problems. Because the moment they don't have any emotional issues or conflict that's driving their ideas and attitudes and behaviors, the moment that's resolved, we don't have any issues with our dog ever. Okay. So what are some of the problems that we see with that suppression later? Because if I'm listening to, oh, they suppress the behavior and I'm going, well, that's what I want. I want you to suppress jumping up on my guests. I want you to suppress pulling. I want you to suppress those things. But what are some of the things that I don't, and my term when I talk about people is I say comes out sideways. So, you know, maybe I'm irritated with my friend or my partner, but I know not to be you know, cruel to them or rude to them. So I suppress that behavior, but I don't actually deal with my internal resentment. And so it comes out what I call sideways, which is I maybe I'm passive aggressive later over something totally unrelated. So like, what are some of the things that like, so even if I was someone who's like, well, I don't care if my dog is emotionally regulated. I just care if the behavior suppressed. Why should that person still care? Because it seems like it's not just, oh, your dog will be unhappy, which personally, I think that should be enough. True. But it seems like there's this like behavioral fallout that happens. Oh, man. Where you see things go wrong. If I were on the phone with that person, I think I would bring how it would impact the dog 
but more particularly in how that approach will continue to impact her life in ways that, or his life in ways that she's not anticipating or that they're not anticipating, which would be, first of all, you're absolutely right. That's going to come out sideways. And I usually like, if we had a, you know, a boiling pot, we had a lid on top of it. We have all these holes that can, the steam can comes out. Well, if we just suppress this one and suppress this one and suppress this one, like it's going to, that steam's going to come out somewhere. And so, but that may not really necessarily be relevant to, you know, okay, that's fine. Well, the impact of that is, is that now you're going to be chasing behaviors and that you actually, they may actually not be connecting the one with the other. So let's talk about some restless, hectic behaviors. Let's talk about digging in the backyard, talk about chewing, whether that be shoe or your baseboards or a piece of furniture, (laughs) you know, we could talk about demand barking. Let me define that a little bit barking for your attention, specifically for your attention to do something and getting frustrated when you don't do the thing so that they bark at you. So those are really common behavior. Leash biting, like the dog's just overwhelmed on the walk and they just turn around and bite the leash and and that kind of stuff. So if we stop those and punish them, lots of ways, different ways to punish things, but I just want that to stop and I want the chewing to stop and I want the digging to stop. And so command-based and control-based training comes over and says, okay, cool. Behavior happens in a vacuum and that we can address these isolated issues as if they're totally unrelated to anything else going on underneath this. And that the reason the dog was driven to those behaviors was probably out of a place of frustration that didn't know where to go, right? Boredom, restlessness, hectic energy, anxious, whatever, right? Unresolved. It's got to go somewhere. Emotions are energy. Well, we just cut off all of the steam escapes. (laughs) And now what we have is maybe we're getting even more reactive out on a walk, or now maybe we're trying to dig under the fence and escape. This is where the videos of like people come home and their drywall is missing. Like the dog has taken the entire drywall out. Or like, I think the the one that concerns most people outside, like those things are all concerning. But I think also like when we talk about bites, like I had a trainer say to me recently, like, like the most of the people that call after a dog bite, 75% of them are going, I'd never in a million years would have thought my dog would have bitten. Like, and we see so many, you know, maybe shows or examples where it's like, oh, he's bitten three people. And what do I do? Or he growls, he lunges. And it's like, you always think like, that's the dog that's going to bite. But she said that 75% of the dogs that bite when she gets calls, he's the friendliest. He's that he, we never would have thought he would, he's never growled at anyone. He's never. And that's like one of the most severe sort of like sideways or like blow your top behaviors. Well, the other thing is the statement that he's never da, 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 X, Y, Z is missing some information. I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm just saying that it's missing a little bit of information. We generally talk about our dog's problems through the lens of our own. And I think we probably do that with our kids too, to some degree, but you know, If the dog, let me give you an example. If the dog doesn't have behaviors that frustrate the owner and that affect them negatively, whether it be embarrassment or frustration or worry or whatever it is, then the response is, oh, he's a great dog. And he may well be a great dog. That doesn't mean that he doesn't have any struggles or problems of his own. And in the case that you're describing, particularly a prone to stress, 
right? The dog may be prone to stress, but the behaviors that are exhibited from that stress just may particularly not bother you. And so that's why they say like, oh, he's been fine. I would have never expected. Well, meanwhile, for the last three years, the dog's been really stressed out and it's just been building up. And, you know, and that's their defense mechanism, by the way. You know, they use their teeth and under pressure, different dogs will respond more quickly or less quickly to those things. So we've been talking a lot about some of the problems of what I would, my terms is like the very heavy handed, almost like whack-a-mole behavior, compulsion, compliance things. So let's then talk about the pendulum swing because the other content that I see all over my social media is this, the term like force-free training, positive reinforcement only training, right? Which is, it's, admittedly, very much more holistic. You have people that begin to have those conversations about relationships and trust. And, you know, it's okay. Like I saw one the other day where he goes, it's okay that your dog doesn't always obey you. Like they have thoughts and feelings. And I'm not saying that it's not important to do training. It's not important to, yes, I have to keep my dog out of safety. I want my dog to have a solid recall. But also like we don't have to There's not this panic of like, I'm not a good dog owner because every time I ask, my dog doesn't do X, Y, Z. And another one that I followed that talked, he had his four dogs in the front yard, two off leash, two on a long lead. And he said, here's the deal. Like, you don't have to train your dog to be off leash. And some dogs may never be off leash dogs, either because you don't, the time it would take to make that dog an off leash dog is just not realistic for your lifestyle or because you don't have those needs. And he's like, I'm a professional dog trainer. I have two dogs that can go off leash all day. I have two I keep on long leads for one reason or the other. Like, that's fine. It's fine. Like, your dogs are there to live with you and be happy and do this and do that. And I actually really appreciated a lot of these new ways of looking at, you know, is your dog happy? Does your dog trust you? Is it a relationship? And so I'm curious if you could talk about from your experience of being a dog trainer for so long, like, how have you seen that pendulum all the way over. Because the other thing that happens on that side is don't use any force, right? And force is everything from a leash pop to the e-collars to, you know, what are like any kind of force, right? No newspaper rolls, no squirting, no all that stuff. And so I'm curious, what are some of the pros and cons perhaps that you've seen from that shift all the way over to this very kind of almost warm and fuzzy? (laughs) I don't mean that mean. I really, I, I really appreciate so much of the force-free movement. Well, and I do too, hundred percent. Dog training would not be where we're at today without that movement. The and I'll say like the technologies that we have, the training technologies, the the techniques and the methods, and just the technical understanding of certain things is improved so much because of that. I have learned so much of what I do from that kind of movement. I think from my standpoint, and I've been trained under both and sought out both because I'm just that person. I'm just curious and like, I want to learn how to learn and I want to learn why this works and why it doesn't work and what are the shortcomings. And that's just the nature that I am. I'm very curious. So they're both exactly the same. (laughs) Ooh, tell me more. In that the fundamental approach is to change behavior, which is the outward most thing that we see, but it is all driven by thoughts and emotions. You know what I thought you were going to say, which I think is still accurate when you say they're both the same. What first came into my head was it centers around how the person feels. Yeah, well, 100%. 
right? Because like on the compulsion side, you have, I must be in charge. I must be respected. I must be the leader. I don't like these behaviors. I want these behaviors to stop. These behaviors are a problem for me. And I think the error that can happen on the full other side is like, I don't ever want my dogs to feel discomfort. I want my dogs to be happy. I want them to trust me. I want them to be, I want all of their which is still all about the human. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very human-centric. And the both of the models, the ideology and the approach, centers around controlling behavior, influencing and changing behavior. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that's shallow. There are three levels of effect. But we need to think about kids, right? If I constantly meet them at a behavioral level and try and adjust and modify and change their behavior... And that's all that like, you know, we're trying to do is implement control measures around behavior. We're going to have problems, like big problems, right? And I think, you know, we generally accept that idea with our kids. And then when we look at a dog, it just all flies out the window, right? <laughs> and that's big, partly because our training industry is so entrenched in such conventional thought that we, it's very hard for us to think outside of our own box, as it is with any other industry. Training, lots of professional training and conventional training tends to create rigid thinking, you know? And so, and that's why I say they're really the same. They look very different. They sound very different. And I would rather someone err on the side of being too force-free than being too compulsion. Oh, I I absolutely would. There's going to be a lot less learning fallout in that approach than the other. And there we're going to have a lot more success because of that, but there are going to be some limitations because we're throwing the bathwater on both ends. Both are just doing that. So what is the baby in your mind? Like what, you know what I mean? Like what's the core stuff that tends to get thrown out? So I feel like limitations and boundaries are really healthy. uh, Implemented creatively in a healthy way tends to produce the same. Healthy, optimism, connection, respect. I don't mean that like as a dirty word, like you need to respect me. Mutual respect, right? Like, And I think that part of our relationships with friends, family, coworkers, kids, dogs, really needs to have an element of that to be complete. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. <laughs> Well, you're, Amy, more of a, we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, Mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy The Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of The Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. 
Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I have two thoughts and I don't want to forget them. So the first one is going to be about boundaries. The second one is going to be about the mutual respect thing is like one of the things that has been so different in our approach to Luna, our dog, is not just focusing on trying to get her to understand how we're communicating to her, but also taking steps to understand how she's communicating to us. So for example, when we're out in the backyard playing, you know, like we want her to understand when we communicate like, hey, we're done or like you can't jump on me while we're playing. You can't run after my kids when we're playing. But at the same time, like I've taught everyone in my family. And we just sort of, this wasn't a behavior we taught. It was something we observed and now respect that when Luna lays down with a toy, she's done. So leave her alone. Don't go take the toy away from her. Don't go try to make her fetch more. And we just early on observed that and said, okay, we're going to allow that to be her signal to us that she's done. And she, even if it's just done for a few minutes and It's been like that approach in all areas where it's like, hey, we know that when she does this behavior, she's communicating a feeling. And so how can we uh, respect that feeling? You know, when she's asking for space or when she wants affection or when she's confused about something or when she's scared about something or when she wants to lay down and rest. And I feel like that is a really big thing that we took from your approach, even though you never told us specifically to do that. But it was like, if we really want a symbiotic relationship, we're learning each other here, right? And then the force-free trainers that I really respect are the ones that talk about like, there's a difference between being permissive and when you're in your force-freeness and having boundaries because we still teach boundaries. And I definitely have seen people do that. But I'll go back to something else that you taught us that I think was like kind of like life-changing when it comes to tools, because there's a big controversy about tools, how you use collars or slip collars or prong collars or e-collars or any kind of tool like that, and which was around the idea of punishment or negative reinforcement, right? Pressure. That like pressure, whatever we're to call all of that, right? That tools should never be used to I'm trying to think of a way to put this because there's like a layman's way of saying the word punishment. And then there's like behavioral scientific way of saying punishment. Do you know what I mean? So I'm talking layman's terms that tools are for clarity, not punishment. And what I mean by that is that we can use pressure or certain tools. Sometimes people use that in a way that says, if the dog does what I don't want it to do, I will make disobeying me such an uncomfortable experience that they will be afraid to do it. That to me is what I'm talking about when it's like punishment, right? Versus I know the way that people and animals learn is that when they have a positive experience with something, they want to do it more. And when they have an aversive experience with something, they want to do it less. And using an aversive not to teach, if you don't listen to me, it hurts, but instead to teach clarity around this is what I'm asking you to do. Does that make sense? 
I feel like it's a fine line, but like, I just, I don't know, you know, there's, I'm, I'm sitting with my dad doesn't know a lot about dog training with this morning and we use a squirt bottle, right? In some of our training. And part of that, that we've done from you is that as much as possible, the squirt bottle can never be like known by the dog. Does that make sense? Like we don't take it and wield it out. And like, so we hold it in a certain, yeah. So we're sitting there and the dog is not allowed to jump up. And so I sit in a certain position when I think the jump might be coming sort of inconspicuously. And when she jumps, we squirt and that makes her get down. And then the moment she gets down, there's a reward for getting down. And then every time we see her come up and not jump, there's rewards. And so it's like 99% rewards based, but sometimes she needs that clarity of like, what exactly is it? And so we try to use those two. So we're sitting there and then the dog comes up and wants to play. And so she's pushing into my dad with this toy, which is like how she asks to play. And he's like, stop it, stop it. I don't want to play. I don't want to play. And he goes, give me the squirt bottle. And I was like, no, (laughs) because in his mind, it was, if you're doing something I don't want you to do, I can use a squirt bottle to give you an uncomfortable experience so that you'll stop doing it and go away. And I'm having a hard time explaining that those are two very different things and have different effects. Maybe you can do better. So as you know, because you're one of my clients, that's actually a big conversation that we touch on a number of different things so that we can get real clear on what it is and what it isn't and how we're going to accomplish really good, clean learning for the dog without creating a bunch of fallout in the process, learning fallout in the process. But really simply, like, so just the... Let's just take an isolated, like, I'm going to squirt you for doing something you don't want me to do. And without other things happening around that, there's really no, there's very little learning that happens except for learning from pain or discomfort. It's really important when we're dealing with dogs to establish a very simple, one, communication system, but two, we need to help the dog learn how to learn. And that means, simply put, we need to be able to communicate in ways that say, yes, I like that, keep doing that. But that isn't the whole story of how to learn. We also have to have ways to say, no, I don't like that. I'd like to see less of that. And there's a hundred ways to accomplish each one of those. But in my experience, in my approach, we need both and that both actually done well creates a sense of safety in both myself and my wife and my coworkers and my kids and like, and my dogs and a sense of safety and security and expectation and predictability. Right. But we have to put a little bit more thought, you know, the, I'm going to go to the extremes here. The, the heavier handed, the punishment side is more just, just stop the behavior. We have less concern about the fallout from that. I'm not saying that it doesn't happen. I'm not saying that there aren't things to try and counter that. And then, of course, the force-free side is we don't want to use any of that because of the fallout. And just over 30 years, I'm like, well, I don't really like either because I don't think either is a complete, full, you know, learning system for the dog, right? And that, going back, would be the baby out of the bathwater, right? Is from this side, we're just not caring for the emotional development and how it learns and the emotional fallout that can come with those type of punishments. And on the other end, the baby is the limitations and boundaries can be able to communicate clearly and develop that system for the dog in the way that the dog understands and feels optimistic about. And I want to tie that back to a point that we made at the beginning in case people have some confusion. Because at the beginning, we sort of talked about it's not hard for a dog to learn what to do in terms of like sit, lay down, roll over, blah, blah, blah. But those behaviors are in isolation 
I think it's a lot harder to teach a dog to do something different when there's a lot of things happening. So when I'm in a quiet room, every time the dog sits, I give them a piece of food. That learning is easy, right? So if you go under, and I don't mean it derogatory, but like the parlor tricks, kind of like the, the basic commands. But teaching my dog not to jump up on someone is like, a. there's so many other variables happening because he doesn't speak English, right? So if she jumps and she hears no, well, first of all, does she know what no means? And if she does, what, no what? No getting close to this person, no jumping on this person, no being happy to see this person, no king this person. Like I just did nine behaviors at once. Like what's the no, right? And then if we come in with an aversive, whether it's a, you know, this, that, or the other, let's say the squirt bottle, and she backs up. Well, now she's going, okay, I get that the answer was no, but no what? No, this person? Like, is it this person? Every time I, is it, does a bad thing happen to me every time I'm with this person? Like, there's other things that are a lot more complex for a dog to learn than just sit, stand, like, and which are like, honestly, the things that matter the most. Yeah. So what you're saying is, is like, and and you're exactly right. Like just saying no to the dog or even just squirting the dog may not convey all of the information that we think it should be conveying and that we assume that it is. And the dog could be learning any number of things along with don't do this thing, right? Just it could absorb and we call that learning fallout or we call that superstitious association. It did learn the thing, but it also grabbed this other learning that just really wasn't the point, right? And that's kind of what I teach when we bring in something aversive is, is that let's and I explained this with a conversation that an example of, you know, person A and person B and how we interpret and emotionally respond to boundaries, right? A boundary conversation. And so we all have different, you know, people in our lives and person A, if I communicated a boundary, like say he offended me or something or crossed a personal boundary, maybe he didn't know, you know, that's fine. But I said, Hey, listen, that makes me a little uncomfortable. And I would appreciate if you wouldn't do that in the future. Cool. Great. Person A is like, oh man, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize that. I feel like I know you better. That's a little uncomfortable, but I certainly don't want to cross your boundaries. And thank you for telling me that, right? Person A. Person B, same conversation, same boundary. I say the same thing and they're like, oh my God, you hate me. You're never going to talk to me again. I don't feel good about this. And I'm really embarrassed and I'm, I feel shame now. It was the same boundary. It was the same context, but the learners, A and B, had very different emotional responses to that. And so in my mind, it's not whether you use or don't use punishment or that even really being the conversation that we need to have is, is that first of all, how did A become an A and how can we help a B become an A and can we even do that? And that before I bring in any type of correction, boundary, aversive for some type of behavioral learning, I really need to teach that aspect, that function of optimism that A has that B doesn't. If I can shape a dog and help them become really optimistic, meaning I'm going to expect pleasant outcomes from the conversation or the correction. Well, then I can begin as the human, the handler, the owner, the trainer or whatever. Then I can begin to actually have those conversations with zero emotional fallout. 
there's some things that I still need to care for in that process so that I can continue to maintain their strong optimism. But if I use that and teach the learning system about that idea and attitude first, I want that intact before I ever use it to talk to them, air quote, talk to them about a specific behavior. That really was the game changer, I think, in how we've been approaching Luna using your system versus like what I remember growing up because like what I remember growing up when my parents had aversives that they were using with our dogs, it was like the aversive was a tool that you use to just get the dog to stop doing something in that moment. And so, you know, whether it was the little, the squirt or the uh, the popping on the nose or, or the choke collars or whatever. And so it didn't necessarily teach the dog which behaviors weren't wanted. It was just a way to get the dog to stop in that moment because that was easier, right? And so then the dog was always confused. The dog didn't really know when an aversive was going to happen. And there was like a lot of fallout from that. And then they started associating, I don't even like this person. Now I'm dog is growling at dad because dad keeps squirting him, right? And so I was really, really hesitant when we got to the part in training where we were using aversives, we were going to use an aversive. And there were literally like so many things we did with Luna before we got to that point, which I just want to stress because I don't want anyone to like, you know, listen to the podcast and be like, all right, go fill up squirt bottle. But what's really interesting is that I have this video of Luna with my kids. I got really bad backlash on TikTok when I talked about using a squirt bottle as an aversive for Luna and ended up taking the video down. I was like, I'm just not going to talk about this. It's too controversial. But I have this video of my kids, three and five, and my three-year-old's autistic. And it was really important to me that we teach boundaries for our kids and our dog. And it's this beautiful video of my youngest running. And looking back at the dog and going, chase me, chase me, chase me, loves to run with this dog. And I think that pre-working with you, it would have been like the dog is not allowed to chase. And we have to teach them a specific behavior. But with the work that we did with you, with all these things that we don't even have time to get into about teaching, when we free-shaped a bunch of stuff, when we rewarded a bunch of stuff, when we did isolated activities that seemed like they had nothing to do with this, my daughter will run through the yard and Luna will chase her at a distance of about three feet and doesn't touch her, doesn't herd her, doesn't nip at her, doesn't crowd her space. And when my daughter stops, she stops. And when my daughter gets close to her, she lays down. And she started behaving this way towards Laurel when she was 16 weeks old. We're talking the height of puppy hyperactivity, right? And so I posted this video and people were just in awe. And I just laughed because this one person said, I wish my, like, I have a well-behaved dog, but I can't get them to control their hyperactivity around my kids. Like, And then someone said, can you teach us? How, can you show us how you did this? And I just was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> because you won't like it. Because the truth is, I don't let my dogs and my kids interact ever unless I'm supervising, which means the puppy's been in a playpen for six months. And the only time they interact is outside when I'm there and I have treats and I have my squirt bottle. And the first time that she got into my kid's space, she got squirted. And then she avoided the kids because she thought, oh, do bad things happen when I'm around my kid, right? And so we had the kids start to give her treats. They have We have like special high value treats and the kids just shower her with treats, right? And so she goes, okay, so wait, no, good things happen when I'm near these kids. Good things happen when I'm near these kids. And then the second time she ran too close and got in their space, she got another squirt and she backed up. And then my kids came near her and gave her treats. And I kid you not, 
She has never been squirted around my kids again. And from that time on, from that clarity of this very complex concept of kids mean good things and I can play with these kids, but I need to have a certain posture towards the kid. Uh, We never taught her to lay down. We never taught her only three feet. Like she just naturally made choices that were exactly kind of what they both needed. And that to me was like such a life-changing moment of, oh, how much time would it have taken us for our dog to get clarity around this if we did not have the use of an aversive in a way that was still respectful, still mindful, still a lot of protection around any kind of fallout. And it was complex. Like you took us through several rules we had to follow even to get to that point. But that to me was like, you've won me over, Andrew. Like I am a believer of this like way of doing things where like the most loving thing we can do is give our dogs clarity quickly because now she has much more freedom than she had. And much more reward. And much more reward because now it's just treats all day because we didn't stop with the kids giving the dog treat. Yeah. And, you know, just to add a little bit, like I feel like using aversives is in the way that I teach you and all of my students, all of my clients is really helping the dog learn about choices and freedom of choice. And in that way, I'm training the way that they're thinking, not the way that they're behaving. And you can think about it like this. We're on a computer. And if I want to interact with the computer or the software, I have to use the keyboard or the mouse or whatever, right? There's some external thing that I have to do to be able to interact and interface with the software. But the software is what I'm after. I want to influence the software. I have to use the keyboard in order to do that. Well, with dogs, I want to interact with the software and the hardware. And in order to do that, I need to come up with ways to influence and talk about behavior. That's not really my focus. And so when we talk about like, you know, squirting the dog for, you know, getting too close and all of these things, it's just like, I'm only using that to say, hey, I really don't prefer this behavior. And then the rewards come in and say, all of these other things you're going to get paid really well for. And in that process, what just happened with the dog is, is it learned about its choices and on its own began to make free choices in ways that were more beneficial to it. And it made sense to the dog for the dog's reasons to do that rather than for my reasons is, is I'm just a little concerned that she's too close to the dog, right? Which is true, but we need to make it make sense to the dog. It also like, you know, having freedom and autonomy and not always having to be because like it takes a lot of emotional energy to be dialed into someone else if you're looking for your next command right? Or if you're looking for the next expectation of what to do, and that's exhausting. And so the other thing is like a lot of times I'll see in training these days, and this will be my last point because I know we're, I could talk about this forever, but is that, you know, you have, let's say you have a dog that jumps on someone and you'll hear someone say, well, we can't just teach the dog what not to do. We have to teach them what to do. And so they'll say, well, so every time somebody comes in, the dog has to go to their place and then they reward the dog for going to place. And then you actually turn that on its head. And it was like, well, that's real restrictive. That's really restrictive. And wouldn't it be better if we could just with clarity in a way that protects against emotional fallout, communicate to the dog, no, actually, like you can do anything you want except jump. And now the dog has so much more freedom, so much more. And from what I know of talking to people about, you know, how we think about things is that the concentration and the emotional cognitive energy it takes to go, okay, don't do that. So instead do this and now hold it, but I want to move, but hold it, but I want to move, but hold it. The emotional regulation of that, like 
that's a lot of work. And to expect that of a dog, that's a high level of obedience versus can I help my dog learn that there's one thing here they can't do, but that's okay because actually all the other things are so much more rewarding. And now my dog gets to just be and not have to constantly be thinking or being hypervigilant about following the protocol, the the nine-step protocol. Just don't do that one thing. That's so much easier for for a learner. You know, when I designate an area or a context in which there's really, and I construct it to where there's really only one mistake here, but there's a hundred right answers. And that I haven't predetermined any of those for you. As long as it's not this one, you're going to get paid. It it just is really so much easier for the dog, whether it's, you know, chewing on the shoe and I put a shoe out and I kind of set it up. And of course, they're going to go to the shoe because that's what they do. And, you know, I do my little thing and there's a hundred other possibilities here. You want to go play with your bone? You want to go lay on the couch? You want to go in your crate? You want to come over here and sit next to me? You want to go eat some food? You want to go outside? All of those things are going to get rewarded, right? And so for the learner, it's like, oh, I don't really want to do that anyway. I want to do these other things, you know? That quick clarity, like I remember seeing this, this really is the last thing I'll say. Okay. There was a TikTok of someone that said, here's the deal. And they were a force-free trainer. They said, I don't really use tools. However, I'll say this. If somebody can use a tool well and ethically under the guidance of someone that knows what they're doing and they use it to get quick clarity, sometimes that's the kindest thing you can do because it is not kind for you to be constantly frustrated at your dog, constantly yelling at your dog, constantly, you know, that stress you feel when they're, they've got the shoe and they're running or they're running for like, they know that displeasure. And I think what's been cool about doing things from the beginning where we do a lot of management, right? She has a playpen, she has a crate, she can go outside. Like we don't, she doesn't just like run free. And we do a lot of exercises. We taught a lot of relaxation and we taught a lot of clarity around certain things. And we're not picky about others is that I spend very little time being frustrated at her, even though there's a lot of things she can't do, but we just don't allow her to go to those areas. And we don't, you know, and there's the things that she could do wrong in her little world of the the backyard, the playpen, the crate, we've taught some clarity around. And so like, she really seems so happy because she doesn't have to think about making mistakes all the time or get yelled at for all these mistakes she didn't even know were the thing. So Andrew, before we wrap up, because I'm butting right into another recording now, but can you tell people where they can find you if they, you're from the Austin area. So if anyone in the Austin area wants dog training or you also travel some in a bit of a radius. So can you tell people what your company is and where they can find you? Yeah, absolutely. So my wife, Brittany, and I own Dog Savvy Training. Uh, We're located in the Austin, Texas area. We do in-home puppy and dog training for our local service area clients. We also do, and this is what you have been a part of, is we do our hybrid online and virtual coaching program. And that's to anybody across the country. Both of those programs are highly successful. And one of the things that I wanted to commend you on, I was like about to tear up when you were describing like how Luna is with your daughters and everything. And and you had a question. And the question was, is how long would this have taken to get here in another process? And I'll go ahead and answer that for you because I trained in that process for 20 years. You may not have gotten there and you did it in a few weeks. And what we teach is we help everyday dog owners and dog lovers just like you with wild child, overly enthusiastic about life, friendly, but a handful dog, right? Go from, you know, chaos to calm in under 30 days. And we do that really simply in a very step-by-step process that's easy to follow, easy to do. And I think, you know, and I explain it another way, like if anybody is familiar with 
Montessori method and Montessori parenting. This would really resonate with you and make a lot of sense and a lot of aha moments. Now, you don't have to be familiar with Montessori to do well in our program, but if that's something that you're, you know, keen on uh, within your own home, many of our families have said uh, they just feel like their family and the way that they raise their kids and now their dog is more congruent. And that's a value system. But again, you don't have to be Montessori. You don't have to know anything about it. You don't care about that. If you want fast results with less skill, less time, and less effort, and actually what you want to achieve, like you said, I don't really want my dog on a place cot. I would like them to meet and greet well, right? So let's just do those things. And it turns out those things are much easier and more clear and take less skill and less effort to, to produce. And that's what we did. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Andrew. Yeah. And thank you for having me on. This has been really fun. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts.